0: Um, If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. I've been gone for about a month now, and some other, several of the other uh, pastors and community group leaders have been teaching through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. So what I want to do is I'm going to read the entire section from verses 5 through 14, And then uh, we're going to eventually get to verse um, verse 14 or verse 13 where it talks about temptation. So I will start in verse 5 and read through. Verse 5, Jesus speaking, saying, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues, And at street corners, that they may be seen by others, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they're going to be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. Pray then like this. lord i thank you so much for this church it's your church god and i pray that you would be exalted here i pray god that people would um worship you and see how their their lives of prayer as they're silent and meditating or as they're on the bus to work that that they would be in constant communication with you i pray god that you would reconnect people who have been disconnected from you for a very long time or even this last week, who feel distant from you, I pray that you would draw people to yourself. I pray, God, that we all come in here, myself included, as weak people who are tossed by our emotions at times, things that we're tempted with, things that we're tried with, our trials, things that are difficult in our lives, and we're just, sometimes we just feel like a ragdoll, just tossed around by every single thing, things at work and at home and with relationships and And it bears on our relationship with you, God, and I pray that you would deliver us from evil and that you would bring in the presence of God in this place right now, that we would all sense it and know it, the presence of God among us. I pray that you would anoint me and use me this morning. I desperately need your help. Pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, right before Jesus gives us his model prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, He warns his listeners, he says, hey, don't heap up empty phrases when you pray. Do not pray things that are mindless and mindless repetition over and over and over again so that the words that you pray, don't pray like this. Don't sit down and pray and start saying things over and over again that lose its meaning. Don't pray that way. Not that we can't repeat some things in prayer, like maybe um, if someone who's sick in your family, or you're you're sick, and you keep asking God to heal and heal. God's not saying you can't do that. He's not saying, hey, don't keep asking me the same thing over and over again. Just don't repeat things to where they lose its meaning. It loses its weight, where you repeat things and it means nothing. Don't repeat things mindlessly in mindless repetition and call it prayer. Sadly, and ironically, the Lord's model prayer has become exactly that, when we read this prayer, or when you even hear this prayer being read, it doesn't often stimulate our imagination and direct us to a deeper prayer life. You don't hear that in like, oh, our Father, and it draws us into intimacy, and it draws us into connectedness with God. It becomes something that we say over and over again, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done, just something that we say over and over again mindlessly. We read our prayers, or have you ever heard this saying? We say our prayers. Say your prayers. Like, Wait. Jesus didn't say, say your prayers. He didn't say, hey, when you pray, say this. He said, when you pray, pray like this. Huge difference. So this prayer here, this model prayer that Jesus gives us, draws, it should draw us into a deeper prayer life. Because prayer is more than simple one-sided conversation. Prayer is interaction with God. God. Prayer is exposing your life to God. I think that's one of the best interpretations or, or understanding it. What is prayer? It's time exposure to God. Imagine, you know, when you, um, I know maybe not here now, but maybe when the sun comes out, hopefully by next month, you will see the sun. And whenever, whenever the sun comes out in San Francisco, everyone heads to the parks. Hardly anyone heads to the beach, but whatever. To the parks, and you just soak in the sun. You, like, take it in. Right? And on my little break, I did a lot of that. Um, So much so where I haven't, like, my body hadn't seen the sun in like maybe two years. And um, I got sunburned in like maybe 38 minutes. I was just totally sunburned. It's like that. It's like when you're before God and you lay everything before Christ and you expose yourself to God. You expose your fears and your anxieties and your hopes and your worries and your dreams and your future and your past, and your failures, and your temptations, all of it exposed to God. That's what prayer is. And at times, it's stopping and listening. God, here's this thing with my career. Here's this thing with my relationship. Here's this thing with, I want to expose it to you. Would you speak to me? It's not saying something to God. I said in my prayers. It's exposure to God. It's interaction with God. God is living. He's alive. He speaks. And that's what prayer is. It's connectiveness to god all of your life waiting on god listening to god well how do we take the model prayer what we see here the lord's model prayer and do that with this how do we take this this prayer and then drop it into our souls drop it into our hearts and allow it to pull out fears and worries and hopes and anxiety everything that lays deep within it would look something like this briefly it would look something like this our father in heaven that's where it starts right Our Father in heaven. In what ways is God our Father? In what ways do we need Him to come through and show up for us as a loving Father? What ways do we need to be provided for? In what ways is our earthly Father really jacking up the way that we see our heavenly Father? And expose that to God. This should lead us into prayer. And then, hallowed be thy name, or hallowed be your name. In what ways does God need to be more worshiped in your life, more holy, more feared in a healthy way? In what ways do you need holy reverence in a certain area of your life? Yes, this area of my life over here, God, I don't really care about you, and I I need to. I need to see that you're present when I'm doing this activity or when I'm doing this thing or in this relationship or or whatever the situation is, you're there. When I'm trying to viciously fight my way up in work, you see that. Hallowed be your name at my job. Hallowed be your name when I'm at home alone. Hallowed be your name when I'm on Muni. How do you do that all the time? Your kingdom come. This is a great one. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In what ways in your life, whatever that entails, does the upside-down, subversive kingdom of God need to make its way into your life? Parenting? Work? Schooling? Your relationships? what In what way does the kingdom of God need to make its way in? In what way does the king God need to rule over an area of your life that you're the king of? I'm the king right here, but Jesus, you need to be king right here. You need to rule right here. I'm trying to rule this and I'm messing it up over and over and over again. And I'm tired and I'm worried and I'm filled with anxiety. Would you rule over this area? Your kingdom come in that area. And it might look like, because it's what the kingdom of God looks like, something more subversive, something more servant oriented. How do I serve in this area? How do I bring the love of God in this area? Give us this day our daily bread. This is so important. We are so, as Tark talked about when he taught on this, so we don't really need that much. Our needs, because we have all our basic needs filled, our needs kind of now move over and shift over. Like, I don't just need clothes, I need these clothes. I don't just need food, I need this food. I just don't need this, I need, and so it shifts over. In what way do we need to depend on God and trust God for provision in our life? things where anxiety has made its way in, where we're clearly not supposed to be anxious. We might hit that next week. And then, as we talked about last week, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is the confession portion of this prayer. This is where we sit before God and allow God to draw out through meditation, through waiting on the Lord, ways that we've sinned, subtle ways, huge ways, And ask Christ to forgive us. And then we don't stop there. We don't like, I'm so bad. I've sinned in this area. We have to replace that with what Christ has done. And how Christ is so good. And then when that happens, then it leads us to, wait, if I was that bad and Jesus was that good, why am I not forgiving my friend or my enemy or my frenemy or whatever, you know? Why aren't I forgiving them? If Christ has been so good to me and he's forgiven me, why haven't I forgiven them? Forgive us our debts even as we forgive our debtors. And then, as we are going into today, lead us not into temptation. See, what this prayer should be is we should sit before this prayer and allow conversation to happen through meditating on this prayer. It would be a great discipline. I hope I hope that you don't think because we live in a very consumeristic culture that you don't think hearing a sermon on prayer is the same as praying. Or reading a book on prayer is the same as praying. Or even worse, buying a book on prayer and not reading the book on prayer is the same as praying. That's what we do. We're like, I need to pray more. I'm going to buy a book on prayer. Are you going to read it? No. Are you going to pray? No. But I bought it. That should say something about my heart, right? Yes, it does. It says you're a consumer. That's what it says. No. Pray. Okay, we recommend a book that you read, but Don't even go buy it. Just grab a Bible, and if you don't have one, we'll give you one free, okay? No consumerism involved at all. And you take this, and you open it up, and start to pray. Expose your life to God. Sometimes when we begin to follow Jesus, or even you might not even be able to articulate it that way. Maybe you're just like, I start going to church. That's what a lot of people say. Well, I just started going to church. Okay, you start going to church, And you end up somewhere, you have no idea where you ended up. How did you get there? A lot of it is a lack of meditation. A lack of exposing everything, every new thing, every old thing to God. Exposing relationships to God. How did I get here with this relationship? Did you expose it to God? Like, honestly. How did I get here in my job? How did I get here in my life? How did I get here so far? Did you expose your life? you sit before God and go, here I am here it is, I confess this, I need this. That's what we need to do. We need to connect these with real concerns and real experiences in our life. This prayer is not something that should be mindlessly said or read, but something that we drop into our souls and let it pull out conversation with God. Let me show you how this is true. Look at verse 7 and 8 in this, in this section. Verse 7 and 8, it says this. Jesus saying, he said, um, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. And then he says this, For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Keep that up there on the screen. I want you just to, to just look at this for a second. Before Jesus goes into the model prayer, he says, Okay, listen, don't pray like the, okay, don't pray like the, the, the um, religious Jews prayed. They wanted to be heard for their many words, and they would blow a trumpet when they pray, prayed, and they prayed these elaborate prayers on street corners to say that they were holy and to show that they were holy. Don't like, pray like that. Actually, go into a closet, pray to a God who's unseen, and God who's unseen will hear you. Don't do it for, for people to look at you and look at you differently. Do it for God. Do it for your relationship with God, okay? But also don't pray like the Gentiles that don't believe in God. How do they pray? Well, these Gentiles who didn't trust in the living God, the God who has made himself known to us and entered into relationship with us, these Gentiles thought that their gods were indifferent. God doesn't care. God doesn't care and he has to be made to care. So how do you make someone care? You bug them, right? Right? Who remembers when you were a kid and you wanted your mom and dad to care about something that you really wanted? What would you do? You bug them over and over. Mom, don't you care? Mom, don't you care? Can you do this? I need this. I want this. And this is what the Gentiles do. Their God doesn't care, so they have to make God care. How? By repeating over and over and over again to get this God's attention. And what Jesus is saying here is that since the Gentiles made up a God in their own image, that the God that they made up in their own image is just like them selfish. This God's concerned about himself. He's not concerned about me, so I have to make him concerned about me. So I'm going to say these prayers over and over and over again. These gods are probably like me. They're looking out for their own good, so I have to make them look after my good. Why would these gods care about me at all? To this, Why would they care about this small human and what I have to say? So they would have to flatter their gods and bribe their gods and make put pressure on their gods in order for them to care. Um, this is exemplified really well in First Kings chapter eighteen. If you ever read the story of Elijah, there, Elijah, who's this really eccentric, crazy, insane prophet, challenges the, the 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 prophets and the priests of Baal who worship this deity. He says, he said, you guys want to have a deity contest? Let's have a deity showdown, cool? Let's have a little throwdown here, okay? Your gods versus my god, all right? So this is what we'll do, and this is what he said, okay? We'll set up an altar of, of, of fire, and there was like 450 of these priests against little old Elijah. And Elijah was pretty bold. He's like, Okay, hey, we're gonna set up an altar. We're gonna put wood on the altar and, and make this altar and put two bulls on, on the altar. And what we'll do is you'll ask your gods to consume this, this offering by fire, and then I'll ask my God to consume it by fire. And whosoever God answers through fire wins. Now, Baal was the God of thunder and subsequently the God of fire. And they're like, we have the God of fire on our side. We're going to win. We'll take the bet. So they did. And they, made the, they took these bulls and they made, built this altar and then they started praying. And it says in 1 Kings 18, they prayed for hours. They prayed all morning. And then they started to cut themselves with swords and lances as was their custom. Why would they do that? Why would they continue to cut themselves over and over and over again? Because they believed that their God didn't care. And they needed to get God's attention. They needed to put pressure on them. Look at what we're doing. Do you care now? We're cutting ourselves. We're bleeding out on the altar. We're dying here. Will you please help us? Don't you care? And this is—that's why they did that. They, they wanted to make their God care. They didn't. This God didn't naturally care, and they knew that. He wasn't concerned, and they knew that. And they had to get him interested. They had to get his attention. They had to beg and put pressure on their God. Actually, Elijah. Again, he's crazy, right? So he goes on to mock these guys. I don't know who would do that. But he's back and they're praying and they start to cut themselves and he starts saying things like this. Where's your God? Maybe your God's, and he says this, not joking, maybe your God's in the bathroom. He says this to them and they're like crying and cutting themselves and he's like, maybe your God's on vacation. Ever thought of that? Maybe he's asleep. Maybe. No one knows. Louder, louder, louder. He's mocking them. And then then he you got to read the story because it's awesome. Then he like pour, He goes, okay, my turn. Okay, pour water on the altar. Like a water. Like yes, just watch. Pour water everywhere. Just so you know, I'm not making this up. I'm gonna. I'm, God's gonna answer. Watch. You should read the story. Anyway, what Jesus is saying is this: Don't be like that. Don't be like these prophets of Baal who who think that God doesn't care. Do you really think when you approach God in prayer that God doesn't care about you? I'm like, okay, I gotta pray. I got I gotta. I gotta pray long, and I gotta go. I, I gotta just. Tell God how amazing he is, so he looks at me and listens to me. God, you're great, and you're awesome, and you're good. Why are you saying that? Well, because I I need to flatter him. So he listens to me. And God, I know you probably don't care about me, but could you please do this one little thing for me? Please. And this is how we approach God in prayer oftentimes. And Jesus says, don't be like that. Why? Because your father knows what you need before you ask him. This tells us something about God. The Gentile assumes that his God doesn't hear, doesn't know, doesn't care, and he has to be made to care. Your God knows your needs, even before you're even aware of your own needs. You start praying for something, and God knows what you're going to need once you get that need fulfilled. He's going to know four needs in advance, what you need. like, God, I need this. He's like, yeah, but you also need this, this, and this. But you don't have any idea, but I do, because I care. Oftentimes, when you pray, you probably don't even know how to pray. Like God, I need a job. I need to make around hundred grand, give or take a thousand. That's what I need, God. And God's like, I know. I think I know what you need. And sometimes, what we need is the discipline, the the the, the stripping away of. Finding a job and not getting exactly what we want at the very beginning, because God's building in us character. Sometimes we're not ready to handle that big job yet. It would kill us. Trust in the Lord. Trust in God, And this is what prayer does. It allows us to go, "God, you care, you know. Before I even know my own needs, you know them. We don't need to convince God. You don't need to convince God that you need a spouse. Okay, so when you pray for a spouse, you don't go, God, I really need a spouse. I mean, I really do. You might think, I I really do. You don't need to convince God that you need to settle down, which is a strange way of saying you want to be married, I think. It's like, I'm ready, I'm done having fun. I want to be boring and bored for the rest of my life. Will you marry me? I'm ready to settle down. It's just weird. You don't have to convince God that you're ready to settle down. You don't have to convince him of that. You don't have to convince him that you need a, a career. Like, God, I really need a career. He's like, you do? Prove it. Show me you need a career. God knows. He knows these things. When we approach God, he already knows what we need. Oftentimes, the, the problem lies in that we're asking the wrong questions. When I was praying about the biggest career decision of my life, well, up to that point, which I think it probably is the biggest career decision of my life, after a while praying and not hearing, I began to ask the wrong questions. My question pertained to being a pastor or the pastorate and where I would go, my wife and I would go to start a church, and I kept asking God, please tell me, God, please tell me. And then you start telling God things that, you know, like, God, I know you know. I know you know. And I know you know that I know that you know. So tell me. I know that you know. Wait, don't act like you don't know, God. You know all things. Tell me. And I I started to, every single time would consume me. And then what happened was, once I didn't get the answer, anxiety set in. When God doesn't answer on the, in the timetable that we set up, anxiety sets in every time. And you start to get worried. And it starts to consume your mind and your prayers. And it's all that I can think about. And then every single time I would approach God, my questions and prayer were totally wrong. I approached God as if he didn't know my needs. And then a subtle distrust came in. Can I even trust God to send me to the right, on the right career path? Can I even trust God to send me to the right city? You might have these similar sort of thoughts. Can I even trust God with a spouse? Can I even trust God with my career? Or with my money? Or with my relationships? Or with my health? Can I really even trust God there? Then one night, with complete clarity, I realized how much of a a Gentile I was acting like. And I, I was praying as if God didn't care, as if God wasn't concerned about me. Verse 8 doesn't mean that we don't have to pray. When Jesus says, when you pray, God already knows, Jesus is not saying, okay, so therefore don't pray because God knows. That's stupid because in the very next verse, he tells us how to pray. It must mean something else, and it does. And this is what it means God cares. I want you to, I want you to hear this. God cares. God knows even better than you know. He knows and He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your needs before you know them, and He knows how to meet those needs. So trust Him. Trust in God. Don't trust in Him like a consumer buys a product, and don't trust in Him like a reviewer go, uh, 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 Yelp reviewer goes to a restaurant. Don't, don't trust him like, hey, if, you, if you give me what I want, then I'll give you five stars, and then we're good. But if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to give you a review, God. Don't trust God that way. Meaning, if he meets all my needs and he does what I want, then I'll trust him. That's not really trust. I was on the phone with my mom this last weekend. My mom has recently come to know um, Christ as her Savior, and it's something that is absolutely amazing and so we're on the phone she's like Dave I started reading the Bible and memorizing the Bible I was like I was tripping and she's like can I, I want to quote you my favorite verse and I'm like yeah I all day yes and she said Proverbs 3 this is my favorite verse she was like, I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't go to sleep and I'll just quote this verse over and over again trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Meditate on that. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. I really think, especially in this sort of city that we live in, there's a lot of self-sufficient people that think that they don't need authority in their life that think that they know what's going on, what should happen in the way that church goes or the way that your career goes or your life goes, don't lean on your own understanding, partly because you never see things clearly and you only can see things maybe, you, you only have hindsight 20-20, you don't see anything in the future. God sees everything clearly and he sees eternity. Now, when I begin to talk about this, trusting in the Lord. I know what happens in our own heart and the fact that God knows us and he cares for us, immediately we begin to feel the temptation to believe and to do the opposite. Something rises up in our throats that goes, but can I really trust in God? And we get this temptation not to trust in God and to place our hope in other things. There's book Kingdom Kingdom Ethics, which is a really sizable book on the Sermon on the Mount, the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount, a great book. In it, the authors write this. In view of the brokenness of the world, Satan continued, Satan's continued victories and life's many disappointments, the legitimacy of trust in God will always be an open question. Meanwhile, men and women will be tempted to place their trust in idols. Inherently vulnerable, we will scramble for objects of trust, however ridiculous they are when viewed in the light of the cold of the day, multiple divinities, horoscopes, palm readings, 401ks, mutual funds, football teams, lovers, good luck charms, and superstitions of all types will bear witness to this desire for worthy objects of trust. You want something to trust in. And so you will trust in 401ks, you will trust in your daily horoscope, you will trust in your football team, you will trust in lovers and charms and whatever else. We just want anything to trust in. And the thing that keeps answering us back from God is trust in the Lord. Don't pray as if God doesn't care. But when you pray, pray like this, our Father. One who's intimately concerned about me. And he knows my beginning from my end. Pray that way. Because we have this vulnerability to distrust God, I like how this prayer ends. I know that I've, that was kind of my intro. I haven't been up here in a while. Sorry. So I'll try to wrap this up really fast. Okay. So because we distrust God, because we have this propensity to distrust, I like how this prayer ends. This is how it ends. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So the prayer, the structure of this prayer starts like this. It starts in heaven with our heavenly father, getting our eyes on heaven and our hearts in heaven, on on God. And it comes down, all the way down and ends on earth with all its evil and humanity and all our temptation to, to distrust our heavenly father. You see that? Starts in heaven, ends on earth. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then it says all the way down, and then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil here. I love that Jesus is a realist in this sense. He knows our heart's proclivity to wander, to distrust, to be overcome by evil. But as we look at this last petition, there are two problems that come up immediately in the first part of this verse. Lead us not into temptation. There's a problem there. I don't know if you've ever wrestled through this prayer and like, there's a problem. I have a problem with that verse, and there are there are two problems. First problem is this. If you read the rest of your Bible, you'll come to a passage in James that says that God doesn't lead anyone into sin, and God doesn't tempt anyone, okay? James 1, let no one say when he is tempted, i am be tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. Okay, so if that's true, if God doesn't lead anyone into temptation, then why do we ask God not to lead us into temptation? Isn't that a given? Like Jesus, I think Jesus understood that theology. Isn't that a given here? Can't we just take that for granted? I mean, God doesn't lead us into temptation. Why do we have to ask God not to lead us into temptation? That sounds silly. The second problem comes when some Bible translators say that the Greek word that we translate temptation is better translated to test or to try. In that sense, temptation is good for you. It tests you. It tries you like a strong piece of metal. And the more you're tested, the stronger you become therefore temptation is designed to make us stronger it's not made to make us fall temptation is designed to make us better therefore one commentator even says in one sense temptation is not so much the penalty of being human it's the glory of being human glory in temptation you get tempted glory in it because it makes you stronger so temptation or testing trials whatever are good for you they make you more holy they develop character in you. Actually, James says this point blank. James 1, count it all joy. Now all of a sudden we're counting it all joy. All of a sudden now we went from don't take us there to actually take us there, and we're going to rejoice when you take us there. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials or temptations of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, when it has its full effect, uh, let it have its full effect that you may be perfect and incomplete, lacking nothing. Okay, we have a problem here. If, you're, uh, if you study the Bible, you realize that there is a little problem. If that's true, then why are we asking God not to lead us into temptation? Shouldn't we ask God to lead us into temptation? Like, okay, temptation's good for me. It makes me stronger. It makes me more holy. Shouldn't the prayer end and Lord lead us into temptation? Maybe they misheard Jesus when he was talking like, like a Monty Python movie or skit, skit or something, you know, like, blessed are the cheesemakers, never, never mind, you ever seen that, no, okay, so maybe someone misheard him, like, blessed are, sorry, whenever Tark loses it, it doesn't, he's leaving now, good, sorry, whenever Tark loses it, it's really funny, Okay, so what's the answer? So it's not like, okay, so are we supposed to say, we, this is, it doesn't make any sense. God doesn't lead us into temptation, so we're not gonna pray that. Or is it like, well, temptation's good because it makes us more holy. That's better. I believe the answer is both. I think we have to keep the tension here. God does not lead us into temptation. That is true. James says that. Temptation is good for us. That's true as well. I think the tension is relieved by the next line. But deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So, when we're praying this prayer in our time of reflection, in silence, or in the middle of the day when temptation rushes over us, what are we praying when we say, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? This is what we're praying Lord, let us not sin when we are tested. That's what we're praying. Lord, let us not sin when we are tested. We are praying, do not allow us so to be led into temptation that it overwhelms us, but rescue us from the evil one. We are praying, Lord, lead us into right. If we're looking at it positively now, what we're saying is, um, one commentator says it's actually opposite. Jesus does that uh, um, hyperbole a lot where he says the, the greater, argues the greater, but it, it actually means the exact opposite. Lead us not into temptation actually means lead us into righteousness. Like when Jesus says, I will not cast anyone out, that comes to me, meaning you'll never go anywhere because you'll be safe in his embrace. So lead us not into temptation means something like lead us into righteousness. And with every trial, every test, every temptation, lead us into triumphant victory. That's what this prayer means. See, last week, we discussed a prayer of repentance. Lord, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. That's repentance. That's looking back on our day or our week or our life and asking God, forgive us, Lord. Confessing our sins and reflecting on what Jesus has done for us. That's what that is. So if that prayer is a prayer of repentance... This prayer that we're talking about right now is a prayer of dependence. This is a prayer of dependence. Lead us not into temptation is a prayer of dependence. It is a prayer that says, I'm too weak and I'm too flawed and I'm too terribly tossed around by my own emotions and easily overcome by evil and Lord, I need your help. That's what this prayer is saying. It's saying this, whenever faced with temptation and whatever form your temptation takes. Guys, everyone in here has a different set of temptations. Some My temptations aren't yours, yours aren't mine. Don't feel guilty about having a certain temptation, like I'm more evil than anyone because I'm tempted with this. We're all tempted in various ways. But we all have the victory that's available to us in Christ. So all of us can say this, at the point of temptation... I'm too weak. I need your help. I want you to think about the thing that you're most tempted with in your life. It might be prestige and wanting to be known. It might be sexual temptation. It might be anxiety and quick distrust in God. It might be anger and bitterness, and you go there very, very fast. It might be, and this is huge, and I know that some of you guys might not recognize this, but this is big, indifference. You're like, you just don't care. Holocaust survivor, survivor um, Ali Wiesel said this, the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. It's so like, I, I don't hate God, but you're indifferent. You don't care. The way that you overcome the temptation to give into these things as they rush upon you again and again and again is not to try to be stronger, See, that's where the fallacy comes in. I'm going to be strong here. I'm going to be strong and strong and strong, and I'm going to beat this back, and I know I'm going to win, in the sense that you try to bolster yourself and pep talk yourself into victory. And, and, and you know what? Victory doesn't necessarily even come with accountability either, because you guys all know you lie to your accountability partners, right? You know you, know you do. You're like, I only tell them what I want them to know. Or once you finally let the cat out of the bag, you don't really care anymore, Like, that fear's gone. Like, they already know anyway. Whatever. Happens every single time. The way that we overcome temptation is to admit our weakness and turn to God. That's the way that we overcome temptation. Admit our weakness. Temptation is not overcome by being strong, but understanding our weakness. And not just by acknowledging our weakness, but trusting in the strength of Christ. Christ. C.S. Lewis said that we never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. I love that. He goes, you don't really even know the strength of an army until you fight against it. You don't know the strength of an army by giving into it. You don't know the strength of the wind by laying down. You know the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it. And you never know the evil inside of you, of yourself, and the strength of the evil inside of you until you try to fight it. And then he says this, so wise, and Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Christ is the only one who can sympathize and empathize with every temptation you have. Don't be fooled. Every temptation you have. And he is able because he has overcome every temptation and every form of evil to lead you into triumphant victory. So at moments of temptation, what are you supposed to do? When temptation rushes upon you, are you trying to be strong? Or are you admitting weakness and falling into the grace and the strength of Jesus? Charles Spurgeon said that temptation and evil and the evil one, which is Satan in Scripture, can actually serve you. He calls Satan the servant of the saints. I love this. He says, this is brilliant. He goes like, actually, Satan is your adversary. Yeah, but he actually can be a servant. Like, well, how? He goes, imagine if a child is walking with their father and they're by a big dog. And every time the big dog starts to bark and growl, this little child runs into the arms of the father and next to the leg and grabs on the leg of dad. Every time they walk, this this dog would bark and they would run. So every single time the dog barks, they run to God. Because if Satan, every single time he barks at you, every single time he tempts you, you're running to Christ five times a day, 50 times a day, 150 times a day, you're turning to Christ that much. Therefore, he is your servant, turning you to Jesus. It's when we say we're weak I was just talking with someone this last week, some friends, and we were like, you know, we're all about two to three decisions away from ruining our lives. <laughs> we're, it was a great edifying conversation. We're like, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> like, we're, it's all, all of us, we're like, oh, and someone actually said one. I'm like, yeah, thanks. That's great. Uh, and you're probably right. But like, we're all just a couple decisions away from ruining our lives. And it's realizing that we're that weak that we need Christ. That's how weak I am. I'm like, I'm two decisions away from absolutely ruining my life. I need Jesus. This is a prayer of dependence. This is a prayer of, I'm I'm so tempted, I don't have the strength to do it, I need your strength. I'm falling into the arms and the grace and the strength of Christ. The book that we recommend that you read, that many bought but probably few have read, says this. The gospel, God's free gift of grace in Jesus, only works when we realize we don't have it all together. The same is true of prayer. Prayer. The very thing we are allergic to, our helplessness, is what makes prayer work. It works because we are helpless. We can't do life on our own. That's what this prayer is. I mean, how are you saved? You're saved by understanding your need for a Savior. How are you saved? Realizing that you look and you've been looking at various ways to functionally save yourself. And none of it works. And then you see Christ. That's how you're saved. How are you being saved? By the same understanding. Your continued need for a savior. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you are so strong and available. I pray that you would make it known today to this people that you are an available savior. That you're near the brokenhearted, That God, you're God who cares. As Hagar said, you're God who sees. You're God who hears. I pray that people would put their trust in you. No strings attached. Trust. I pray that we would find our, our place in you. I pray, God, that there'd be... A lot of repentance here from rebellion and thinking that we could do things on our own and we realize that we can't. I realize I can't, God. I, we need you. Make us victorious in your victory, God. We turn to you now and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.